Do you enjoy international travel, historic buildings, and helping to restore important places? This week's guest works to connect those interests through her work as a board member of Restoration Works International, an organization whose mission is to restore buildings of cultural significance and provide cultural exchange and understanding. Make sure you have your passport ready and lock that tray table in the upright position. We're headed overseas this week to talk international preservation on PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Melanie Lytle, who is a graduate of Goucher College's Master's in Historic Preservation program and a board member of Restoration Works International, an organization which uses national and international volunteer tourism as the catalyst for its mission to help communities around the world protect their cultural heritage sites and prosper through preservation and renewal of their history. She's a trained architectural historian, and prior to her current position on the board of Restoration Works International, she served as the executive director of the nonprofit Maryland Association of Historic District Commissions. Melanie, it is a pleasure to have you with us today on PreserveCast. Thank you for having me. So I can't wait to talk about Restoration Works International. Sounds like a super cool organization, and I know you're really um, passionate about it. Um, but like all people who come on PreserveCast, we love to know how you got involved in this line of work. So what, what sort of created the, the interest in preservation? How did you get your start in preservation? How did you end up going down this road? Well, I was raised in Northeast Pennsylvania until I was about 13 in just a gorgeous old historic town called Clark Summit. And from the very beginning, you know, my parents brought us to all the historic sites whenever we were studying anything historic. And I was, my life was just imbued with this connection to history. But at 13, my parents moved our family to South Africa. And we arrived in January of 1995, which was about seven months after Nelson Mandela had become president in just a couple of years after the end of apartheid. And it was a really fascinating time to have been in the country when they were rewriting their a constitution, and they were rewriting their cultural resources laws and, you know, designing a new flag and really questioning everything about their history. And I spent five years there. I studied there briefly at University of Cape Town before I ultimately decided, no, history is really what I want to study. And if I'm going to study history, I want to do it back in the United States, which within the area that has always really interested me. So I came back and I got an undergrad in history. Um, and then a couple years later, managed to get my first position as a historian for a small cultural resources firm. But along the way, I was always trying to seek some, some deeper sort of contribution that I could make. And honestly, I found that the regulatory side of preservation was not as satisfying to me as I expected. And those years that I had spent in South Africa were really mind-changing for me. They, they really altered my worldview. It was the first time that I had ever seen just intense, deep, deep poverty, as well as witnessed this period in which everything was possible. 
And so when I went back for my master's degree to study historic preservation, I decided that I would write my thesis on South African heritage policy during the post-apartheid era. And I was really inspired and engaged by the work that they had done in this post-racial period in, in the history. And I saw historic preservation as this wonderful tool for nation building, but also for identifying and building up people by figuring out what their values were and the places that were imbued with those values. And so all throughout you know, my, my beginning of my career and my studies in South Africa, I kept trying to seek ways to tie together my desire to make some sort of difference, be able to give back my interest in what was going on elsewhere outside of the United States as well as my preservation skills and my knowledge. And so in 2014 or 2015, I went on my first trip with Restoration Works International. And I visited the Chiro Gampa project in Nepal. And it was just a wonderful two weeks that I spent up in the Himalayas helping to restore this several hundred year old Buddhist monastery alongside the community. And it really engaged with me. And within a few months, I was serving on Restoration Works International Support. And so, I mean, obviously, as I sort of mentioned before, you have a true passion for this. And it's interesting, the connection with South Africa. I guess my question is, have you been back since you wrote that thesis? Do you go back regularly? I wish I had been. I've not been back since I finished my thesis. The last time I was back was in 2011. Any plans on going back? Oh. As soon as the tickets become affordable, I'm back. <laughs> so there's still and, and no family there anymore. I guess your family moved back. Or? No, my, my family is back, so I don't have any family there. Still lots of friends and of course my colleagues that I conducted research with for my thesis. So I know you're talking about and we're gonna dive more into Restoration Works International. It's interesting to see how you kind of made that connection there. And you worked in CRM in the field, and then you also worked for, I mentioned, the Maryland Association of Historic District Commissions, which is very sort of like nuts and bolts training preservation. Did you, I mean, maybe give us a little little background on what that was like and, and the kind of work that you did there? Yes, I served as the executive director for the Maryland Association of Historic District Commissions for a little under five years. And this is an organization, statewide nonprofit, that serves all of the state's historic preservation commissions. And at the time, there was somewhere between 47 and 48 of them. And um, these are folks that work really hard. They're on the ground. They're appointed by their local council or the local mayor to serve as the protectors and stewards of their community's historic places. And so they serve on these committees um, who get to consider when development comes through, whether um, the the development that's proposed would be would protect these historic places and be able to retain them for the community in the years going forward. And so a lot of what MEHDC did or does is uh, training and providing these commissioners with the knowledge and the skills that they need to be able to do it in a legally defensible, but also um, community-based way. So it was a real honor to work with MEHDC for those few years. During my time there, we rolled out several new training courses on community engagement, on mid-century modern modernism in Maryland. Uh, we did one on ethics. And so there was an opportunity as well to hold social events throughout the state. I really enjoyed being able to meet our commissioners on the ground where they were. 
And did that have, do you feel like that had any, has, has that provided any support for the kind of work you're doing with Restoration Works International? Yeah, I think it did because I'm a believer in local preservation. I really feel like that is where the most meaningful and um, exciting and long-term preservation outcomes happens is at the local level. And those who serve their communities and protect their their local historic places have the ability to really make the connection between a historic place and the people who live there. Meaning there's there's obviously economic values that commissioners, historic preservation commissioners can promote uh, to the constituents of a city or a county. But there's so much more than that because historic places for people are you know, for some people, it's sentimental. Sometimes it's nostalgic. There's memories that are in these places, and people value historic places for so many different reasons. And the protection of that happens, I believe, at the local level. So we've danced around it a little bit, and we've talked about sort of the work that you've done and how you got involved in Restoration Works International and how your professional work has sort of you know, influenced that and, and obviously the, your, your thoughts on sort of local preservation. But why don't we take a step back and talk a little bit about Restoration Works International? What's the history of the organization? How long has it been around for? Maybe give us an idea of, you know, where it works, um, to kind of give us the background of the organization before we jump into some of the projects that it's working on. Restoration Works International was founded in 1998 as the Cultural Restoration Tourism Project. And our first project was in Mongolia at a Buddhist temple. And we worked there for about 10 years before then moving on to our next project in Nepal, which is the Charogampa I just mentioned previously, and the site that I got to visit on my first trip with Restoration Works International. And the RWI works with communities to restore buildings and sites that are important to them. We believe that this means the communities can benefit economically in a lot of ways through job creation, but also socially and culturally by recognizing and celebrating a unique place in the world. We're able to restore a site or a building that's important to them. We're now currently working in India, and we also are working in the United States and Pennsylvania. So the Vishwi Haveli Project, which is our most current project, is the one which I have been involved with for the last few years. And it's a lovely 140-year-old Haveli that we're working on, and it's a partnership between Restoration Works and the owners of the family, the Mahim Mehta family. And let me stop you there. You you said it's a a, a Haveli? Yes, Haveli. That was what I was just about to tell you. A Haveli is a broad term. It means a nobleman's town home. And this particular building is a very large masonry building. It's three stories high. It's got two big courtyards. I think it's got eight different stairwells. There's a lot of work to do there. Um, it was the ancestral home of the owners who was, it was built by one of their ancestors several generations back. And it's a wonderful example. I think it's a wonderful example for me to use to be able to tell you a bit more about, you know, what restoration works values and how we operate. Yeah, I think that's great. Go for it. I'd love to hear more about it. All right. So the family that owns the property and Restoration Works International are committed with us to kickstart this cycle of renewal in Udaipur, which is the city in Rajasthan where this home is. We're restoring and we're revitalizing this Haveli into a community and heritage resource center. They will also have some revenue producing accommodation, as you probably know very well, in order to 
maintain these historic buildings once they're restored. There needs to be some sort of sustainable end use. So that is also going on in the back of the High Valley. But we envision this project as a model of heritage-led development within this city's historic core. We'd like to be able to demonstrate to the larger community that it is feasible and it's beneficial to restore these derelict historic buildings in this old city in India. Of course, we also recognize that particularly in a dense urban environment where we're working, that conservation has to be coupled with programs that address socioeconomic needs. So we're not only working on the Havelli itself, but we're also working within the community on projects that the Havelli neighbors have prioritized. It's about a three-year project, and we're about a year and a half into it. But regardless of where we're working, we have some guiding principles that are very critical to us and that we like to incorporate into all of our projects. And at this project at the Haveli, we are really focusing on creating skilled jobs for women. We've partnered with another NGO, an Indian NGO called Jandaksha Trust, that specializes in work with migrant women. Uh, this is a population that really struggles, particularly they don't have a very high level of education. They don't have much um, ability to speak up for themselves. And this organization provides not only training, but also legal assistance for a lot of these laborers. Many of them are women. So our crew is built of local migrants and um, women who work in construction. And several of them have been working in construction for decades. And in fact, one of the women on our crew, her name is Ganga, has been working in construction for 40 years. Uh, she started working when she was about 10. Uh, she got married when she was 14. She had her first child by 18, but she has been working in the field for years and has never been given the opportunity to learn new skills. And so one of the really important goals of this project was to identify some of these women that have the interest and promise to be able to develop skills and give them an opportunity to do so. So over the three years of this project, Ganga and the other people on the crew are learning restoration skills so that they can go on after the end of this project to, as a team, and restore other historic buildings, being able to make a, a good wage um, in a dignified sort of employment. And Ganga, when I spoke to her about a year ago, so it'd been about six months on the job, she mentioned that she had never had the opportunity to improve her skills anywhere along the line. And that in the six months alone, she had picked up you know, all of these amazing skills that has made her a much, much better worker. And I've been pleased to see her. She's really stepped up and become a leader in this crew. She now sort of tells everyone else what they need to do and trains the other workers as they come in. And she's a real joy to have on our crew. So, I mean, obviously the work that you're doing not only is important for historic preservation, but it really kind of makes that relevance, the connection between, you know, as you say, sort of workforce development and creating careers for women. And I mean, you name it, it seems like this, this program and this organization is really hitting all the marks. You, you also mentioned that there's a, a U.S. project. And so this is Restoration Works International. I'm curious how you guys ended up working on something in Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's right. We really feel that we'd like to be able to give back in our own community. Now, most of our volunteers actually come from the United States, and we're living in very interesting times, as you know. And it's 
I think it's important to all of us that we're able to contribute and give back within our own nation. And so we partnered with Colebrook Railroad Project this last year for an ongoing partnership in Boyertown, Pennsylvania. We're helping to restore a railroad from the Civil War. And our volunteers who come get to participate in hands-on restoration tasks like painting and wood staining. We've also done landscape work and washing the train interiors and exteriors. It's really a lot of fun, but it's also an opportunity to come into a small town that has been struggling but has seen an enormous Im- improvement from the relaunch of this railroad. Um, it's really changed everything for this little town that people come in and now visit the railroad and they're also going to the local stores and they're visiting the local restaurants and the local sites. It's a wonderful opportunity for our volunteers, of course, as well, because it's a beautiful area of Pennsylvania. So if people want to get involved in this project or others, what's the best way for them to do that? They can visit our website at restorationworksinternational.org. They can visit us on Facebook as well and Instagram. And how much does it cost to go on one of these projects? I mean, obviously going to Pennsylvania is a little different than going to Nepal, but do you have any sense for, you know, how much it costs, like what people would need to think about in terms of, you know, expenses associated with these sorts of projects? So Restoration Works funds our projects through the volunteers who come on our trips. So volunteers pay a fee to participate, and then the majority of their fee goes directly toward the restoration project itself. So that's the salaries of the staff or building materials, anything else that we need to do there. And so for our India project, it's a little less than $3,000 to come for a 12-day trip. If you're coming for just the seven-day trip, it's half that. Uh, it's a similar price for our Colebrookdale project as well. And what does that include? I mean, just curious, like you have to pick up your airfare, I imagine, right? Yes, yeah, so you need to make your own way to India and take care of your own visa. But once you're there, we take care of the rest of the details. So we house you in a very comfortable lodging in Udaipur. We take care of all of your meals. We do several outings throughout our time there. The volunteers Work, get to work alongside the crew for the time that they're there, but there's also plenty of time to explore Udaipur and India in general. It's just the most stunning city I've ever been to. And uh, if people are curious about, are there other upcoming projects or are these the two big ones that you guys are working on right now? What's sort of next for you guys? These are our two current projects, but we are always seeking partners so that we can expand. We would like to be able to run several projects at once. So if someone knows of a project and they're interested in partnering with us, they can contact us at info at restorationworksinternational.org. One of the key components of any project that we work on is the community aspect. We only choose projects that come to us from the community themselves and the support that we get there because we really believe that that is the connection that makes a restoration project last. And and you said that they come from the communities themselves. How do you solicit? I'm just curious how you would like solicit a project from Nepal or Mongolia. How do you find out about that? Does someone in Mongolia contact you guys or? We often are contacted directly. People find us through the internet or through friends. 
through context that um, we've had in the past. So, and then we also seek projects. So if there is an organization that looks like it would be a good partner for us or a site that we're particularly interested in, then we do pursue it ourselves. Very cool. You mentioned before we started rolling that you currently don't have any staff, but I guess the goal is to eventually hire staff and to continue to grow this program. It's, I guess it's, it's turning what 20 years old this year. So, you know, I, I, it seems like you're on a, on a growth path right now. So. We are, that is our goal. We have a very ambitious five-year plan that we implemented last year, which includes quite a bit of growth. We would love to be having five or six projects going on throughout the world, both in the United States and elsewhere. And we would be able to um, maintain staff, a couple staff to be able to do the daily administration that it takes to manage a project like this. Yeah, because this is not insignificant, particularly with the international component and travel and, and all of that associated with it. And I guess, do you have to send folks like an advanced team to set things up? Yeah. So for example, when we started this India project, I went about seven or eight months before we actually finalized the agreement with the family, our partners there to ground truth, everything that we had heard. We, we spoke with them for over a year before that. So it's a very long process to figure out if everyone involved shares the same goals and desires and values, and then actually getting on site and determining if the project is doable. And if it's also an environment that our volunteers would like to spend their time in because they're our main funding source for the work. Right. So it's a delicate balance between project and space and accessibility and all those sorts of things. And then I guess you have to source your materials then locally as well. You can't just go to the Home Depot. That's right. And that's one of our major values is that we support local suppliers and local artisans. And so that means that our partners there are, who are on the ground 365 days of the year are usually the ones who are identifying and tracking down an architect, the engineers, the craftspeople, and maintaining the team every day. Whereas Restoration Works and our volunteers get on the ground maybe twice a year. So again, if people want to find out more about it, they go to Restoration Works International. You can find you on Facebook, on Twitter, at your website, and that's the best place to go. When's the next opportunity to go? I mean, I know you mentioned the two projects that you have going on, but I presume you have specific times that you're you know, having volunteers go out there. So when's the next sort of cohort of volunteers? When are they going to be assembling at these projects? Yeah, absolutely. I will be leading the next trip, which is going April 1st to the 12th. 2019. And this trip was planned to correspond with two major festivals that are in the area, the Gangor Festival and the Marwar Festival, which are just the most glorious celebrations of spring and life. I'm really looking forward to that. If people want to join us for just the first seven days, there's also that option. We also have a trip going to India in December. There's a December 5th to 17th trip if anyone would like to put off their trip a little bit longer. But I will mention that we have a 25% early bird discount that's available if you register before January 31st, 2019. And then for Colebrookdale, we'll be going back at the beginning of July. And that is a five-day trip. And a little easier to get to. You don't have to fly there, depending on where you're coming Absolutely. from, I guess. The Colebrookdale trip is 
just like our trips in India and the fact that it has a lot of the same components that we value when we're abroad. So we stay in local accommodations and we eat at the local restaurants. Our B&B is in fact owned by the mayor of the town. Perfect. Well, this has been a lot of fun. It's a fantastic organization. um, And it seems like it's doing a tremendous amount of good, not only here in the United States, but beyond difficult question for someone like you who has traveled the world and seen it all. What is your, Melanie Lytle, favorite historic place or site? That is not a fair question. There are so many wonderful places. I, it's pressed. I would say it's Aix-en-Provence in France. Okay, tell us about it's it. A, <laughs> it's a town that was established by the Romans in 123 BC and has been occupied continually ever since. And I went there as a college student for a year in my study abroad. And Aix-en-Provence embodies everything that I love about historic places. It has this lovely, long, rich history, and it has gorgeous architecture from all different eras. But importantly, it's alive. It is a vibrant place. It has some of the best farmer's markets you will ever experience. There is music in the streets. There are friendly people walking up and down the the streets as well. And it's just a wonderful people-filled place that um, I love dearly. Well, we have had a few repeats of favorite historic places here on PreserveCast, but I can assure you, you were the first one uh, with Aix-en-Provence. So uh, we will have to look it up. And uh, maybe you can schedule a Restoration Works International project there. It sounds like a good place to go. Oh, I would love to. (laughs) Well, Melanie, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us and for all the good work that you're doing. Um, We're looking forward to hearing more about Restoration Works International in the future. And I hope people who are listening who are interested uh, log on to your website and figure out how they can get out to one of your projects. Thanks again. Thank you. It was a delight to speak with you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.